listening to My Life, My Say's podcast. Okie dokes. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to kick off the show. If you have joined us for the first time, hello. And if this is your multiple time, then hello again. You're very, very welcome. Uh, my name is Swazi and welcome to Quarantine Question Time, hosted by My Life, My Say. This is a new digital space for young people to receive expert advice on coronavirus and its impact on young people. This show will take place every Thursday from next week starting 7.30pm and watch out on our socials because we've got a couple international events happening next week so keep your eye on the socials as well. Um, each week we will aim to select a panel with a broad range of views, knowledge and experience with panellists who are relevant to the big stories or debates of that week. Make sure you join us on the socials. Please follow at my life, my say on Twitter and be part of the conversation using the hashtag QuarantineQT because we're using this to follow up the questions and your comments so we can get that into the conversation as well. I am ready to meet our very special guest. Can you just give me a wave, guys? Because you're just so gorgeous. Look at this in the sunshine. Hey, the rain was mad today. So we're adding sunshine to your Zoom call. We have got the one and only Nimco Ali OBE, activist and founder of the Five Foundation. Hi, sis. How are you doing? Meet myself. Hi, I'm good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for joining us. We've got Dominic Good as well, Head of International Trade at the Food and Drink Federation. That is a title, my friend. How are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Swazi. I'm great, thank you. Great to join you this evening. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. We've got Dr. Sonia Adesara in the building, medical doctor and activist. Hi, Sonia. How are you doing? Hi, I'm all right. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. I love the fact that you've tuned in at work, just to add that extra... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Extra pepper to the convo. Um, and finally, we are joined by none other than Lord Simon Woolley, founder of Operation Black Vote. Hello, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. And I, I guess you've got to have one old person on the show. <laughs> I, I'm honoured. I'm honoured. I mean, you've got to have one grand, grandee or the big godfather. Call, you, call me what you like. It's a pleasure to be on the programme with you talking with the, the panelists and young people. Oh, you guys, thank you all so much for jumping on this week's conversation. Um, let me run everyone through a few ground rules. So there's a few functions at the bottom of your screen, guys, and one of them is called raise your hand. Throughout the event, you will have the opportunity to make your own comments or ask questions to the panelists. And in order to do this in a fair way and to allow everyone the opportunity to speak, you will need to indicate by clicking the raise your hand function and I'll call your name so we can unmute you, unmute you as a speaker and hear your voice and you can throw in your question comment um, there's also a function called Q&A if you prefer not to speak that's absolutely fine you can write down your question and type it out so that we can see it on the Q&A function and add that to the conversation as well um, and also something called live polling we will be practicing democracy in action by giving you the opportunity to vote throughout the event um, this is going to pop up on your screen real soon because we're going to go through our first poll of the evening and the question is this ladies and gents what worries you most about COVID-19? That's our first poll of the evening. What worries you most about COVID-19? The, the answer should pop up on your screen. Um, we've got eight options. We've got job security, people close to me who are at risk, my mental health, economic crisis, the strain on the NHS, getting ill myself, 
supplies and housing. So young people, get your votes in. We're going to take the answer at the end of the show. Um, but let me throw it over to some of the panelists that we've got sitting here. I want to know um, from Nimco, let's go over to Nimco first. Of those options, which one do you think young people will choose as the number one thing um, that worries them most about COVID-19? Um, I think the, I think job security might be um, high up there, but I think for me it's mental health. I think um, like even myself, like you know, being self quarantined for um, seven weeks, it's actually quite full on. So yeah. I think that's one of the key things. So I think a lot, a lot of young people will go for job security, but I do think like you know things are going to change, and change doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a disadvantage. So I think this is a moment for globally for us to really think, and specifically for us on 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 this side of the world with the G7 and part of the G20 to really think like you know that there is a different way to look at the global economy. So I would like to say to young people, this is an opportunity for us to do things differently so don't be too afraid about change yeah amazing yeah great two answers as well i'm sure for the last couple of weeks they've been coming up as ding 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 number one so um yeah we're still taking in the answers dominic what about yourself out of those eight options which one do you think that young people will say yeah that's the number one thing that worries me most i i think right now probably people close to me who are at risk and i think so many of us have friends, family, loved ones who are working on the front line in the NHS, in care homes and in jobs where they're putting themselves at great risk at the moment. And I think that's an enormous strain, an enormous uh, source of anxiety for people right now. Uh, but I think, as, as Nimco said, following up closely on that, the piece around job security is something that feels like it's really going to grow in the weeks ahead as furloughed workers find out what's going to happen with their companies, whether they have jobs to go back to uh, when, uh, you know, for my industry, restaurants and cafes and pubs start to reopen. So I think that's one that we probably haven't hit the peak of it yet, but will grow in the weeks ahead. Yeah, amazing. And Simon, what do you think may be the number one pick? I think has been, as has been said, job security is going to be high up there. I mean, let me just say that post-COVID-19 will be the biggest challenge, the biggest challenge particularly for young people. I can envisage that post-COVID there'll be an extra million people unemployed and this will fall mainly on young people. Now that's an enormous challenge for them, for society, for businesses, but you know here's the silver lining that when we come out of this, this tragedy, this crisis, I think politicians will be receptive to a new contract on who we value, how we do things, transforming the infrastructure of our society. I think young people should take the reins and start making demands. Yeah, all the young people at home are like, yeah, we're gonna start cheering for this. So um, yes as well, and last but very not least, Sonia, which one do you think may be the number one pick? You're on mute sis, you got on mute. <laughs> we need all your gems. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an impossible question. And actually, I think they all, they all are linked. Um, yeah. So not having a job, economic insecurity, of course, will impact your mental health. Um, and then, you know, your fears about your loved ones, again, will, of course, have an impact on your emotional well-being and your mental health. So I think it's difficult to really bring them apart. Um, but I do think looking after your mental health in this period um, is really, really important um, and something that we, we often forget to do. Um, so really important that we look after our mental health. Um, so sleep, um, 
it's not spending too much time on social media. There's all these things that we can do to keep yourself mentally healthy, which is as important as staying physically healthy as well. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Thank you. Um, so that's our poll, ladies and gents. What worries you most about COVID-19? So those are your eight answers. Get your votes in because we're going to take the result at the end of the show. So stay with us because your vote does count. Um, and I'm going to throw it over now to some of the panellists. We want to find out who these guys are, what they're doing in a time like this as well. Um, and if you've just locked in, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Swazi. You've locked into My Life, My Say, Quarantine Question Time. Um, and tonight we are looking at how COVID-19 and how it affects people from ethnic minority groups. Now, this is a huge, huge conversation. Um, lots of people going off on it. So we've got um, the best of four minds, really, to kind of unpack from their areas and really hear um, their, their take on it. So I'm going to go over to Dr. Sonia first. Um, and I love the fact that we've got a doctor in the house. So Sonia, tell us a little bit about your remit. Tell us a little bit about, yeah, your relationship to this question as well. And just on a day-to-day, -day, what are you up to? Um, so hi everyone, I'm Sonia, I'm a junior doctor and um, over the past few weeks I've been working on a COVID ward and also in an A&E department um, and my outside of work I campaign on issues around migrant access to healthcare um, and racial injustice particularly in our healthcare system um, and I've also over the past few years been campaigning on issues around um, health inequality and also austerity and how it impacts people's health. Amazing, amazing. And what's it like to be on the front line? Um, gosh, it's up and down. Um, as in, we know the, the issues that they've been on the front line. Um, it's, of course, stressful. Um, and, you know, look, in my ward, um, the staff are all amazing and brilliant. And throughout this crisis, have showed just the amazing amount of care and professionalism to all of our patients coming in but it is you know everyone know everyone's worried um and we know the risks um that we are being exposed to um so i think it has shown the very best of our nhs but it's also yeah. really exposed um some issues and some underlying issues and also some further issues that have been with regards to making sure that our healthcare professionals are being protected properly um and and also issues within the nhs around is our nhs has it been in the best place to deal with crises like this yeah amazing amazing thank you so much we're coming back to you don't worry sis we're coming back to you for more gems um i'm gonna jump over next to lord simon woolley what an absolute honor to have you on this call sir um yeah and i just want to say you're no um you're no stranger to what it looks like to lead people to be in situations where yeah leadership is key and we want to see the best decisions made um so in terms of covid19 impacting those from ethnic minority groups what's your take and how does what you do on a day-to-day -day basis kind of yeah just fashion into yeah an answer to this or, sure. or a response well an hour or so ago i was wearing a tie and was on a virtual meeting at the house of lords particularly talking about COVID-19 and young people uh, and unemployment. And I mentioned that the devastating impact on young people and particularly black and minority ethnic communities. It, it, for, me, for me as an activist, it's heartbreaking when you see the data that of the medical profession uh, pay tribute to Sonia and her workers. Because when you, when you see that about 72% of all those that have died due to COVID-19 in the medical profession have been from black and minority ethnic communities. And it's not just in the medical profession, it's also actually in the, in the care home too. You know, 25, 
Filipino carers, caring for sick people have lost their lives. And just two things really. One, that it's very important that we acknowledge, we acknowledge the massive contribution that black and minority ethnic communities make in what is the jewel in the crown, the NHS, is, is the first thing. We're there in high numbers, we're dying in higher numbers. But, but, also, but also that we need to address this the race penalty, that why is it that we are, we are placed in such vulnerable positions in such high numbers, particularly in the care home. So as a politician, as a parliamentarian, I'm asking all those questions. But for the young people that I'm saying, as we come out of this, with this economic downturn, how can we mitigate the fact that, you know, all the young people that will be on this program will be saying, look, I've got my life ahead of me. I've got all this creativity. How can I express it? That as a parliamentarian, I want to ensure that they have a fantastic future. Yeah, amazing. Really repping the flag for the young people in those big rooms. It is amazing because sometimes you feel so disconnected. You're like, what is going on in those meetings? And to know that someone like yourself is flying the flag um, is a huge encouragement. A huge encouragement. Um, I'm going to jump over next to Nimco Ali. OBE says, come through, activist and founder of the Five Foundation. So let us know a little bit about yourself. Um, and yeah, what is the kind of work that you get up to? Hi, um, yeah, so I am the co-founder of the Five Foundation, which is the global partnership to end FGM, which is female genital mutilation. And I think one of the key things about COVID-19 is that it is a global um, epidemic and this epidemic is disproportionately in, in the UK and on the continent of Africa, which we work on mostly, is going to be affecting the most vulnerable. Um, so one of the things is that I want to talk about the global aspect of it and then also the UK aspect of the work that I do and, and the community I'm from, I'm Somali, so a lot of Somali community are amongst those people that are dying and those people that are in hospitals and that's not just actually I just want to say that's not just in the UK it's in Sweden and it's, and it's across Europe as well so there are about 250 um, um, you know, older gentlemen in, um, in, in Sweden who are all Somali who are all quite chronically ill with COVID-19 so I think this is a community issue that goes across Europe but I really want to talk about the fact that because we're focusing so much on COVID-19 and that's great to do that that we are forgetting issues like FGM child marriage and access to contraception um, just looking at the data alone there, so between now and 2030 there were 68 million girls at risk of FGM and we were making incredible progress but in the last um, month and a half because of the fact that things have been pulled back two extra million um, girls could be added to that seven million children could be born on the continent of Africa to young women because of um, lack of access to contraception one of the key things that I really want to highlight is that we have to look at the long-term impact of COVID-19 and on the continent of Africa specifically, women and girls are being ignored on a day-to-day -day basis. So if we start just thinking about the fact that yes, we have to hold our politicians accountable to the way that it's, it's handling COVID-19 here, but I think there are starting to have conversations about tackling or maybe reducing the 0.7% commitment, which is our, um, like our, our international development aid commitment to um, developing world. So my day-to-day -day basis is actually just keeping in contact with women on the ground in Africa who are like, you know, pleading with us not, not to forget about them. And also 
know, saying the fact that when we're talking about domestic violence and child um, abuse here in the UK, this also happens within ethnic minority communities. And it's great that the government is investing in DV, but I, I see very little specialist services for girls that are in within Somali communities, the South Asian communities where early forced marriage is, is an issue. So we have to start taking a very um, diverse and race sensitive um, like an analysis to things. And it's not just about complaining and I'm, I'm all for holding the government to accountable and um, hold the government to accountable. In the middle of a crisis, we have to make sure that everybody is getting the support that they need. So a lot of the things that I've been doing is having conversations with with, with my own community, reminding people that DV, um, DV um, so domestic violence services also need to be language sensitive and the fact that we need to not forget girls and young children within certain ethnic communities within the UK. Amazing, amazing. And, and yeah, you make such a good point that this isn't just impacting here in London or UK or if this is a global, global thing that's going on. And so, yeah, thank you for being the ears and eyes for just what's happening around the world as well. Um, Dominic, that, that nicely segues me into you as well, I suppose, international um, traders, man. So um, yeah, your title, I just looked at it and I thought, wow, have I got to give thanks to you for just the way food and drink works? What's, what's going on? So your title is the head of international trade at the Food and Drink Federation. So what does that look like on a day-to-day? -day? Okay, I mean, it may, may be worth me saying a little bit about who we are because we won't be familiar to many people. But essentially, the Food and Drink Federation is a trade body. We represent members uh, and they are manufacturers of food and drink across the country. So they're all the big brands that you know in the supermarkets, but a huge number of smaller companies, family owned businesses uh, that produce ingredients and just wonderful, wonderful products. Uh, and our work is to support those businesses and make sure they have what they need and act as the sort of collective voice in our discussions with the government. Ordinarily, my work is looking at international trade agreements and doing the work on Brexit that has been going on for four years now and been a real, really stressful time for a lot of us to try and make sure we have the best possible trading relationship with the EU and the rest of the world to make sure consumers can have the products they know and love going forwards. We, we parked that six, seven weeks ago. We stopped all of it uh, and we've worked only on COVID, the entire team since then. And we essentially came back with three big priorities to focus on. Firstly, the workforce. Uh, our industry represents, uh, employs 450,000 people, but across the wider supply chain, that's 4 million people work in a role related to food and drink. That's one in eight of every working, uh, working people across the UK. And we recognised that the workers were deeply anxious about what was happening. Uh, and they needed reassurances and we needed to make sure they were safe and well looked after. One of the first challenges was making sure government recognised food and drink as a priority. It's not historically been that case, uh, but we had a lot of conversations with government and highlighted the need to recognise the priority of food and drink, that we need to find ways to keep food and drink factories open, working with the unions, working with you know, all the different parts across the supply chain, uh, our farmers, our restaurants, our hospitality sector, uh, to keep things going to make sure that the population would have access to the food they need and could have that security. Secondly, we looked after the businesses to make sure that they could do the things they needed to do. And that's largely my area, making sure where they import, that they can get those goods in, where paperwork they need from around the world can't come in because there's no flights with posts on them coming through. 
that we find other ways to deal with that. And then finally, the point really that's really critical and I think will be of interest to so many people is for the consumers, because food and drink is a great universal and it matters to all of us so much. We needed to tackle the selective shortages that came up. And a lot of people talked about panic buying as though there was some irrational behavior from the public. And I think that's a little bit insulting and I think not true. What we actually saw was restaurants closed down and people bought from supermarkets where they'd normally eat out. And there was this big shift in the dynamics that went on. Uh, and industry took a few weeks to respond to it, but we did. And we filled those uh, shop shelves. We made sure people still had what they need. We had producers that were making antiseptic hand wash to, to go into the NHS. And we had a lot of our companies with that have been donating food to the vulnerable. I think one key point that I will make, and we're very keen on making with government, is that there remains a very big gap in the treatment of the vulnerable around food and drink. And they fall between the gaps between numerous government departments. So we've been saying that there's a real urgent need for government to put in place a dedicated minister for hunger to make sure that the good work that Fair Share, the Trussell Trust and all the food banks do is not just left to them, it's something for government to step in and really lead on and support. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you so much for that. You know, it's, it's amazing to speak to all of you guys because you're all in areas of work that for someone like me, you, you think, okay, I've gone to the shops and there's not anything there. Like, what's that all that about? And knowing that, you know, I can put a face to a name and know that that work is going on. Um, so yeah, thank you so, so much. We're gonna open it up really as uh, soon as possible uh, for Q&A. So you guys at home or wherever you are logging in, um, drop in your questions. We wanna go through as many as possible. You have got a stellar lineup of people who are gonna take your questions. Um, and so we're gonna kick things off. And also this conversation is all around how COVID-19 is affecting those from ethnic minority groups. Um, and so really we hope in the next, half an hour we can't get through all of it but we hope that we do a chunk of it as to understanding is that true why is that true um is it as simple as thinking well is it true that as many people from ethnic minority groups are on the front lines therefore they're in contact with the virus is that true we're going to unpack and try and do all of that as much as possible um so our first caller on the line goes to telly luau telly are you there with us hello hello hi Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Let us know your question. Of course. Um, so I'm sure, as our panelists will know, there has been the government has called an inquiry um, into the reasons why we're having dis, um, ethnic minorities are disproportionately affected by coronavirus. Do you think enough is being done, or do you think this inquiry will just be one that will highlight what we already know? Um, and yeah, just generally those thoughts on that, please. Amazing. Thank you, Telly. I'm going to throw that over to Lord Simon, really, because I'd love for you to just maybe unpack what is this inquiry for those who are jumping in on, jumping in on, jumping on now, um, who may not have been aware of that. What's the inquiry and what's it all about? Yeah. Well, well, as I said before, the disproportionality of black people dying and affected has been through the roof, a devastating impact. And so the cry from the black and minority ethnic communities is that we need an inquiry. The government responded and now the Public Health England have set this inquiry with a professor Kevin, Kevin Fenton, that uh, I think we need a bit more transparency. We don't know what the terms of reference are, and we don't know if it's going to include, for example, socioeconomic data that looks at poverty index in this analysis. It's needed. We need to be more transparent. We need to take people along with us. 
but I would argue that if we get this right in this, in this questioning, that we can begin to remodel the way that our society is. Because at the moment, at the moment, you've got care workers, for example, some of them on zero hour contracts or low paid, having to make an impossible decision. Do I go to work? Do I go to work and risk being contaminated and then taking it back to my family or elderly people? Or do I stay at home and not be able to pay the rent and not be able to feed the family? Impossible decisions. I hope this inquiry will cover that. Yeah, amazing. I just wanted to jump over to um, uh, Sonia as well. I know you're nodding along and I just wanted to um, hear from your perspective. What's it like to be a junior doctor, to have the inquiry going on? Um, do you feel those pressures of coming to work and running that risk as well? What, what's it been like for you? We, we just need you off mute, sis. Keep forgetting. <laughs> no, no, all good. Um, yeah, so I was, I was saying is that I think the first thing is that what we need to acknowledge is that um, dis disparities of health between racialized groups in this country is not a new phenomenon. Um, so we know for many years that people of colour, black and ethnic minority people, black and ethnic minorities have faced barriers accessing healthcare. Um, and we know that they are at greater risk of preventable and premature deaths. Um, yep. And I think, you know, the, I guess in the past few weeks, the narrative that's been used to explain away the disproportionate deaths um, needs to be scrutinised. And that, that focus on, you know, innate biological differences is not very, mm -hmm. well, frankly, it's unscientific, but I also think it distracts away from what we know to be the underlying causes of health inequality. Um, and so... And I also think it, it, it removes scrutiny and accountability from those in power that have allowed these inequalities to exist and continue to exist in our society. Um, so to a very large extent, your health is determined by the social world that you're born into. Um, so your, your diet, your ability to exercise, your wealth, your, um, your um, stress levels, all of these things have a massive impact on your health. Um, and I think the question we need to be asking is, why is it that people of colour in this country are more likely to live in poor housing, um, are more likely to not have access to open space, are more likely to live in poverty, are more likely to be in these insecure, low-paid, undervalued jobs? Um, and, so the beauty, and if that inquiry is not asking those questions, then we're not going to be getting the right answers. Um, so the, the health disparities that we've seen between people of colour and um, white British people very much mirror the social and economic inequalities that we see between um, between those groups Amazing. so you know I do like I, I I guess I I welcome the inquiry but we have had lots of audits in this country already highlighting that racial inequalities exist um, we have lots of academic um, and public health uh, studies to explain why we have these health inequalities um, and but we, we've also had 10 years of policies that have exasperated and further widens these health inequalities in this country so i guess um unless this inquiry um, is asking the right questions yeah. um and seriously addressing the underlying problems of inequality and structural racism then we're not going to this, this problem of racial inequality and injustice will persist yeah Amazing. Thank you so much um, to you both really for shedding so much light on that. We've got a follow-up um, comment from Melissa Johnson. Um, oh, Melissa John, sorry. Melissa, are you there with us? Sorry, can I just add something to that? Is that... I'm just going to take Melissa and then I'll take yourself. I'll take yourself. 
Hi, Melissa. Sorry, it's Melisha. My, my question was in regards to a different point. Um, so if, if uh, the other panellist wants to answer that, that's okay. totally fine. Melisha, lovely to talk to you. Um, yeah, I'll go to Nimco first and then I'll come back to you. Is that all right? Perfect. Yeah, so one of the things so that I really um, agree with what Sonia is saying, but um, one of the key things is that this is a two-way street. I think we have a lot of evidence out there in, in terms of health inequalities that are not just within ethnic minority communities, but also within poor white working class communities. And one of the key things, and one of the things that I really hope is that this pandemic shows that we need a stronger public healthcare system and I think the NHS is the NHS is great at dealing with chronic dis um, diseases like cancer and everything else but we're not really good at dealing with the health of the country and we and we've kind of allowed everybody to have this self-responsibility and then everyone just turn up at A&E and say well I paid into the NHS so I need to be treated I really do think that um, post-COVID-19 we really need to be looking at a UK public health narrative where we're talking about access to contraception what we're talking about cancer we're talking about healthy eating and we're we're really talking about ways of really educating young, young people and obesity is one of the biggest killers in this country and obesity is a massive impact on ethnic minority and white working class communities so I'm hoping that as a result of this AIM inquiry and of, of, of COVID-19 that we will spend more money and time on public health. Yeah amazing. Just before I take the call I'm just going to go over to Dominic and ask in, in um, under the umbrella of change and we're really hoping to see change um, once all of this is is um, yeah scrutinized like everyone's saying and we ask the right questions. In terms of your world of work what changes are you hoping for? I, I think you know the scrutiny is absolutely critical to all of this. The thing that worries me is that that will have a certain time scale and we've heard from the Prime Minister earlier today that they will be communicating about reopening uh, society and cutting, you know, getting rid of the lockdown uh, next week. That poses an enormous risk for those people returning to work and we need something much more immediate so that we can learn the lessons of where things have worked well and where people have managed to continue working in safe environments. Um, so I think there's something really critical needed very, very urgently on that so that people who are going to be asked to return to work potentially as soon as next week, uh, that they have the reassurance they need that they can work in a safe way. Because I think the fear I have is that that's going to play into so many of those problems that you highlighted at the beginning with your question around anxiety, around mental health challenges, mm -hmm. uh, and, and feed into making a problem that we've already seen with this very stark data even worse. Sorry, I'm on mute. Yeah. Perfect, thank you. Um, I'm gonna go over to our caller next. Melisha, have I got your name right, Melisha John? Are you with us? This is honestly like radio, you never know if your caller's there. Hi. He's on mute. Um, you was on mute, yeah. so let's give us your question again. Oh, okay. No worries. Yes, so my question is in regards to domestic violence. Um, I read that there were 50 million more cases predicted around the world this year um, due to the pandemic. So with the work that's going on, what do you think the impact will be on women's lives across the world? And with anyone facing domestic abuse, what are the go-to organisations that they can contact that safe spaces? Yeah, brilliant question. Um, if I can throw that over to Nimco, and also if you do have any of the references, if um, yeah, people are in that situation and want to reach out, they'd be great to hear as well. 
Um, yeah, one of the key things I want to say that if you are in danger, 999 still works, so please call the police and they will um, attend, um, the, um, attend the call. Ultimately, yeah, it's like it's one of the things that the patriarchy always uses for pandemics in order to oppress women. And it's really great to see that the UK government has stepped in, like, you know, committing um, close to, I think, five million altogether, um, one on a hot um, um, help and one on extra services. But ultimately, I think we really need a structural and educational change. Like domestic violence doesn't happen. It's not a disease. It's something that you have to make decisions. It's, it's something that we've allowed to, um, we're allowed to grow in our country in the sense that we've actually sexualized women, objectified them, and then actually led them to the position where like we've kind of allowed them to, to, to stay in really um, controlled relationships. What, what I really want to say is the fact that globally, um, issues like domestic violence, FGM, early forced marriage, um, forced pregnancies are going to be going up because as a, um, as a cause of the um, pandemic. But we have to say that this pandemic does have gender specific issues. So um, one of the key things is that, you know, Women's Aid for the UK is, is the key place to go to. And if anybody wants anything for global um, advocacy groups, I think the UN um, has a list of those um, organizations. But it's a human um, condition that, that, that we're fighting on a day-to-day -day basis until we have true equality. Domestic violence is not going to end. And I just want to say to every single woman that's out there or every single young person, I think that's, again, there are young people that are living in situations where the abusive partner is not their partner, it's their parents or their parents' partner. That is also domestic abuse and you can't call the police on that. It's what I want to say is that there's nothing wrong with you and support is still out there. So this um, epidemic doesn't impact what a woman's aid or any of the helplines that are out there and any children specifically as well Childline is also there for you to speak to i wish i could be a lot more hopeful and say that there are going to be billions that i'll be put into the um, issue but at the moment not so much but i really want to say is that we have to just keep the fight going and saying that we can't be forgetting um 51 of the world's population which are women which are systematically being raped and abused on a day-to-day -day basis mm. And it's also really good to add as well that, you know, uh, we'll drop all of those links as well um, in our comments and make sure that those helplines are available, um, especially for you if you're watching right now. Um, and also touch base with people, pick up the phone, send a text message, check in because you just never know. Um, and yeah, even if you just need to prod a little bit more than usual, then make sure because someone could really be in need of your help. Um, we've got another caller on the line. I'm going to go over to Mo, who's got a question for Dr. Sonia. Mo, are you there? Yeah, hello. Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Mo. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Okay? Yeah, good, thank you. What's your question? So, yeah, basically, it's a two-part question. So, I'll start with the first part. So, as a frontline NHS worker, Dr. Sonia, you're seeing the effects of COVID-19 on a daily basis. Could you explain to us what that looks like? Great. Yeah, as a frontline worker, um, you see the effects of COVID-19 every day. What, what, what does that look like? Do you mean, like, what, what symptoms people get or... Oh, just being in the front line, basically, what does that look like? What does that feel like for you? And and, do you, and obviously, there's a PPE, PPE shortage as well. So do you ever feel like we're going to get to a point where we're going to have enough PPE in order for doctors and frontline workers to feel protected? So just that information on that. Okay. Um, so it's actually people with, with COVID, it's... it's they present with quite similar things. Essentially, they have struggle, difficulty breathing, um, their oxygen levels go low, we need to give them oxygen. 
Um, and sometimes if they're really struggling with breathing, we need to take over their breathing for them. So they may need to be intubated um, and go into intensive care. Um, so that's what it looks like. I think something that I have noticed, particularly working in A&E over the past few weeks, is that I have been concerned that we are not seeing all the other issues that people normally come into hospital for. Um, so I have been concerned that actually, you know, particularly like last week when I was working there, the A&E was quite empty because um, we have two parts. We have the COVID and the non-COVID part. And the non-COVID part was very, very quiet. So that has been worrying me um, over the past few weeks. Um, your question about protective equipment. So there is an issue of protective equipment, um, but there hasn't been enough. Um, and there is concern that because our guidelines are different to the World Health Organization guidelines and the European guidelines. So for example, on my ward, when we're working with COVID patients who are symptomatic and we're doing close care, we are told that we are safe just wearing an apron um, and a, a, a surgical mask. And that's one that is not fitted to your face. So there's gaps around it. And many of us feel that that's not offering optimum protection. Um, and I don't think that we are going to be getting enough protective equipment. So what I've been calling for um, in the past couple of weeks for the government to actually be honest that we don't have enough protection and then we can make arrangements. So I've you know, had discussions on my own ward about there's certain, certain members of staff who are at higher risk of dying from this virus if they get it. Um, and that is people that are older, that have health problems, that are black and ethnic minorities. So we're now having, we are having these quite frank conversations with like, look, I think you are, you are at higher risk. Some of us are at lower risk. Um, we know that this equipment is not really good enough to, to provide optimum protection. So let's have a little, let's have these discussions about who should be providing that close care and who shouldn't be. Um, it's unfortunate that the government hasn't um, been more, I think, more transparent about that. Um, and, you know, it is quite a raw issue. Like in my trust, we've had um, two people die and then um, both of them were, were quite young. Um, one was a, um, a, a healthcare assistant who was training to be a nurse. Another one was a nurse. Um, and then this week we got emailed to say that a junior doctor um, had died. So it's, it's war, you know, it's real. And, um, and I guess what's really upset me this week is I, you know, I spoke out about this on the BBC on Monday. Um, and then this week I've had Tory MPs tweeting things about me and I've had my face been put on newspapers in the Daily Mail and I've had just ridiculous amounts of abuse all week um, and it's it I just it it's it frustrates me because I'm like this is a real issue we need we d I don't want to be playing games on this like we actually need action and honesty and transparency because lives have been put at risk um, by the lack of action and the dishonesty that we're getting on this subject yeah yeah amazing and we just want to encourage you sis like keep going like hate or hate you know what I mean if people are gonna say what they're gonna want to say but just keep fighting because it's so true and I think when you come so close to it and you lose the people you're working with it makes it so real like you say so um yeah thank you yeah. for your work and, and it's not just healthcare stuff you've got to remember it's people's families so you know I have colleagues who their family members now are unwell and that guilt that you have, then as a healthcare professional, that like you're putting your families at risk. So you have to think about that as well, that it's healthcare professionals and their families. Um, we are humans as well. Um, so just, yeah. yeah, amazing. Thank you. Um, we have got another, oh no, a question has come in um, from Kanza. Hi, Kanza. Thank you so much for sending in your question. Um, they're 25 and want to know why is it that individuals from BAME are being affected more and why is there nothing being done by the government to alert ethnic minorities to take extra precautions during the crisis? 
Um, thank you, Kanza. Thank you so much for getting involved. Um, I'll shoot this over to, yeah, Lord Simon Willie would be great if you could take a first, first peek at this one. Oh. Yes. Just... Well, it, it's, not, it's not straightforward. I mean, you know, that historically that our communities, black and minority ethnic communities, uh, have always been drawn to the caring profession. My mother, when she came on, part of the Windrush generation, she became a nurse and spent the best parts of her years with the NHS. So we're there in disproportionate numbers as doctors, as nurses, as porters, as cleaners. And so we're overly, we're overly exposed. Um, I think as Sonia, Dr. Sonia kind of highlighted, there's, there's a lot of inequality within the health system. And so I've, got, I've had news that a lot of doctors feel particularly pressured to be in COVID-19 wards, even though they haven't got the right equipment. Mm. This is another added layer that puts them in this, in this exposure, danger, danger zone. And then of course, when they go back home and they take it to the their friends and family, and of course, the other very, very heartbreaking stuff is, is that we've, had, we've seen some nurses, for example, black nurses, who have called with symptoms and, and been told to stay at home. And then by the time they needed help, it was too late. Yeah. Or the black nurse who, who was like six months pregnant. What is she doing in a COVID-19 ward? Why did someone say you're pregnant? You should be anywhere near this. And so it's all these anomalies that are compounding, compounding, the, the race inequality question that we have got to make these these demands and it for me it's heartbreaking and I'm angry but we need to use that anger and put it to the head of public health England and the NHS and, and our and our ministers and stop and stop making demands yeah perfect yeah jump in Sonia you can go yeah so uh, yeah and I, I completely agree with all that like institutional racism within the NHS is a problem that we have known about for many years. And prior to this virus, we know that black and ethnic minority um, doctors are more likely to be complained about, more likely to face bullying in the workplace, and crucially, are uh, feel half, um, half as likely um, to feel that they're not able to speak out about bullying in the workplace or about safety issues in the workplace. And this is something that in the past few weeks has become really apparent um, with healthcare professionals feeling pressured to go into the workplace without the protective equipment and put themselves at risk. I have had you know, a colleague of mine to call me about this last week. She, had, um, we have, she was in a very high risk ward, so with, with CPAPs, with ventilations, it's the most highest risk of getting the virus. She failed the fitting test for the mask. It meant the mask didn't fit her face properly. Um, and she also had an underline. She also had health issues. And so when she told her consultant about this, her consultant essentially pressurized her um, or guilt-tripped her, bullied her um, into going into that workplace and going onto that ward without having the equipment that fitted her properly. Um, and this is something that actually in the past couple of weeks has been a really recurring theme that we hear from doctors and nurses who are feeling pressured to um, go into the workplace and put themselves at risk and are unable to speak out because of underlying issues that we have around institutional racism in the NHS. Um, so it is an issue. Um, the government have now said that, have, I think they wrote a letter to NHS Trust yesterday about this, um, saying that we know ethnic minority workers are at higher risk. Um, it's, it's, un it's, it's unfortunate they had to be pushed on this, um, but I think we're going in the right direction. Um, but we do, going forward, we have to learn from this and we need to be understanding that why is it in the workplace that you have 
these issues around black and ethnic minority doctors feeling that they can't speak out um and be, and why has this not been addressed yeah exactly but been addressed in time um, Can I just say, sorry i'm just going to add to that just to say that yes this is an issue within the uk but also if you're looking at the death rates in America, in New York as well, it's ethnic minorities that are, well, well, Af well African-American um, um, population are dying there within, across Europe, within Sweden. So this is not just a UK issue. I think there, there has to be um, a real look at why ethnic minorities are the ones that are dying within Western countries. And I think that, 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 that is to do with a lot of the, like, you know, inequalities. But I just want to say that this is not specifically um, a UK thing. And I also don't, um, thing that the nurse that um, the pregnant nurse who who died was on a COVID nineteen um, um, ward while she was pregnant. So I think we're making a. I think there are some great conversations here, but we have to be very um, careful about generalising and really just thinking that this is a UK issue. This is a global issue at the moment with ethnic minorities across Europe and America all dying. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Zane is on the lane. Uh, Zane is on the lane. <laughs> Zane is on the line. Zane Khan has got a question um, for Dominic, I believe. Hi, Zane. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Just out of interest, where are you calling from? Um, home at the moment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. So what area? London, London. <laughs> uh, Zane, hit us. What's your question? Um, so yeah, my question was regarding um, small businesses really. So because of the pandemic, the current way of working has changed a lot, especially for the food and drink industry. Yeah. So uh, they've, had, they've had to move away from the traditional ways of working and start doing online trading now. So how do you think this will um, affect the small businesses and do you think it will affect the small businesses also? Great question. Thank you, Zane. Uh, it is a very good question. I mean, it's it's a massive challenge and some businesses have done very well to switch from selling in bricks and mortar shops or, uh, or other premises to, to moving to online. But it's not easy and it costs quite a lot of money to do that. And to be able to sell food and drink remotely comes with so many challenges around making sure that food is safe and hygienic and it reaches the customer in a way that's fit for purpose. The government has done quite a lot in terms of making loans available and uh, some grants for smaller businesses. But I think what I see is that it's really difficult for businesses to access those finances to, to help businesses get ready for it. Um, in some cases, the banks are not being terribly helpful. Uh, we continue to have almost daily conversations with the governor of the Bank of England uh, and various sort of figures in the treasury and the Department of the Environment to say to them that, this is really critical now uh, and for manufacturers while they've kept things going to this point in many cases we're now reaching that crunch point where restaurants and hospitality will start to reopen and that will create this sort of wave of additional problems and um, companies are running out of cash i think there's no no two ways about it particularly micro businesses and family-owned businesses they they have weeks to go uh, in terms of the cash they've got and they urgently need help with this and i think the 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 moves government make has made have been good but they can do more uh, and they are responding to some of these things but but these things are are critical now and they need to move quicker and just free up those funds to help small businesses adapt and actually uh, uh do what they need to do i think in the longer term this move to more e-commerce and online trading was inevitable and you see so many great businesses that have been doing that for a while. But this has been the impetus for them to, for many others, to sort of start to make that switch. There's, there's so many great websites out there. And there's one I've seen that's 
uh, run by an organisation we work with that's helping uh, greengrocers and traders in fruit and vegetables actually sell those products around the country. And for people like my parents who are uh, in their home and they can't get access to any deliveries, it's an absolute godsend. They can go on it, they can find where they can get these magnificent boxes of the best fruit and veg you've ever seen that would have otherwise been going into Michelin-starred restaurants and the finest eateries across the country. And they can get that stuff and it's, you know, every bit as good, if not better, than the stuff they'd normally get and much more competitively priced, which is a win-win for them. Yeah, definitely a win-win. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you um, for, your, for your question. Um, we've got questions coming in in the Q&A. Um, hi to Andrew, um, who's, who's locked in. Andrew says, we hear numbers from the government regarding deaths from COVID-19. Why do they only supply hospital deaths and not total deaths, which will obviously include care homes and others? Um, yeah, great question, Andrew. Great question. Um, Lord Simon Woolley, we'd love to hear from you. Well, I think the biggest scandal that's been unfolded has been with the care home deaths, most of the elderly people and, and, and their staff. And, you know, we've seen it's not in the hundreds, it's in the thousands. Of course, as I mentioned before, that if you have a care worker that has to go there because they've got to put food on the table, travelling on public transport, bringing the disease. Once the disease is in a captive space, those elderly people are, are exceptionally vulnerable. You know, they're elderly by definition and they have underlying ailments and it's just a tragedy unfolding and for weeks and weeks and weeks we were kept in the dark yeah. about what the, the, the need to be protected, the need to be shielded, the need to be isolated or tested. Now it's beginning but there's been a heavy price, a heavy price to pay. You know we often look at those countries like Russia and China and say that they're not transparent and we don't know the, the numbers but you know there's some questions for us to ask here, you see the data, the data we could be the highest fatalities right across Europe. This is a 21st century modern society. We knew what was coming down the track. We saw it unfold in Italy and Spain. And yet we were saying, let's shake hands, everything's gonna be fine, let's stay calm. And now we've got this tragedy on our doorstep. I, I just hope that we learn the, the lessons was structure of governance and transparency and accountability yeah. has not worked well. And just on that point, actually, about Spain and Italy and other countries, do you think we're doing the best that we are um, doing at the moment in comparison to other countries who are a little bit more ahead of us? No, I don't. No, I mean, given that we knew what was coming down the track, we had those vital weeks to prepare and we're only testing now. And even when we're testing now, I mean, you know, what's the point in testing somebody when they've got a symptom? If they're in a danger zone, they should be tested from the get-go. Because if I, I need to know whether I've had it or not and whether I need, whether I'm safer or not. And if I'm not, then I shouldn't be there. So, it, you know, the, the tragedy is, this isn't about politics, left or right or wherever. This is about life and death. And, you know, I, I, as I, to, to Dr. Sonia and her, and her colleagues, I mean, you know, people, people clap for you, that's right, but we need to protect you. Mm. Uh, we need to ensure that you can have a platform to say, look, this is going wrong, and can we do something about it? Yeah, yeah, 
I think, sorry, I think that's really um, the honest of Lord willing to say that this is not about politics. I do think, I do think that we were behind the curve at the beginning, but, but, but we are stepping up and the government is doing a lot. So I just want to point out, I think it's quite unfair to say that this is not about politics when you are specifically a Labour peer. So just wanted to say that. Well, well actually, I'm not a Labour peer. I'm not a Labour peer. And, it, and I'm saying this is not about party politics. This is not about party politics. This is about life and death. I'm a crossbench peer. I'm a crossbench peer, and I would point the finger to say to say to our governance, whether it's right or left, that we could have done a better job. But I think the question was, are we doing are we doing enough at the moment? And I think we are. Like you know, this government is is getting up and they are listening. So I think that's why I just want to put, um, and, and point out. Um, on, on the point on data collection, I, I think this is in part a legacy from the economic crisis of 2008 and 2009 that saw enormous cuts taking place to the civil service. And it's a problem that we faced as an industry, I mean, aside from uh, the collection of data on deaths, the key data sets that we used to have that businesses relied on and that were really important have been cut back and the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, has faced similar cuts to a lot of the other departments and government bodies and, and that is a consequence of what we're seeing now, the ability to respond and to, to get that data together and make sure it has the integrity that's required is, uh, is hampered, frankly. Yeah, uh, Dr Sonia, we'll go to you and then we'll go back to the poll, so go for it. Um, I agree with, with um, what has been said. Um, I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that the delay um, and the inaction and the dithering at the start of this pandemic by this government has cost lives. Um, we have had seen a huge numbers of cases and a huge numbers of deaths in this country, um, and some of them could have been prevented. And if you look at other countries, if you look at Germany, if you look at South Korea, and they have kept their death rate and numbers of dying from this virus significantly lower than, than this country. So I think we need to be honest about that. Um, and only honesty would allow going forward to make sure that we have the best strategy to stop any further preventable lives lost. Um, I'd also want to just the point about care homes and also and also mental health. Um, I think the um, the lack of transparency of what's happening and also the lack of protection to workers is, is an utter scandal. So prior to me moving to this COVID ward, I was working in mental health and in our mental health trust, we have had deaths of, of, of the mental health staff and also deaths of mental health patients on the mental health wards. Um, and I think there is, it has been, it has been shamelessly forgotten. And um, I do think it's, it's, this isn't about paying party politics because this for me is about, we need to be honest and transparent because otherwise more deaths will be lost. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, talking about testing, for example, the government are saying we're doing lots of testing. We're not, <laughs> you know, we're not doing mass community testing. And the World Health Organization have said very clearly that if we want to suppress this virus, we need to be doing mass community testing. That's finding every case in the community, testing, testing them, tracing their contacts and isolating. We're not doing that. I mean, the government needs to be honest about that. Again, with protective equipment, we do not have enough protective equipment to keep workers safe. Again, they need to be honest about that so we can make adjustments in the workplace to ensure that no further lives are lost. So it's not about playing party politics, it's about being honest and um, about being transparent. Um, and we do need to hold the government account to make sure that no further unnecessary lives are lost. Yeah. 
Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. And um, we're just going to jump to the poll before we wrap up. Um, and we did want to hear from the young people who have logged on. Thank you, everyone who's logged in. Um, your question is this, what worries you most about COVID-19? And the results have come through um, to say that 25%, yes, people close to me who are at risk is a huge, huge thing that worries young people. I mean, Dr. Sonia, that's no surprise to you, right? No, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> of course not. It's, 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 yeah, it's natural. Um, and it's a really worrying time for everyone. Um, we will get through this. There is going to be an end in sight. Um, and I just want to reassure you that in the NHS, we are doing everyone that comes to the door is, is going to have the best care that we can possibly give. Um, but yes, it's a hard time for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Also, job security um, and economic crisis are, are top of the league as well. Um, and Dominic, you were just sharing about y uh, young businesses and businesses that are, are fairly new um, and just being impacted. So any advice for someone? Just want to add any other tips for those who have um, yeah, found themselves in that tricky situation? Uh, reach out to trade bodies. There's a lot of help out there. And I think we've heard from the other speakers on all sorts of issues. There are people out there that are there to help you. Our organisation is a member organisation, but we've opened the doors to the entire industry throughout this crisis. We have a helpline by email. I can share that with you. If any uh, business owners or uh, young business owners or any sort of workers in our industry have questions, come to us. If we can't answer it, we will help find someone that can do. Um, but there is no shortage of support out there. It's just finding that right person. Yeah. Um, and Nimco as well, any other links that you want to share or where people can find you? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, but ultimately I think the woman's aid number is the key thing. And that 999, if anybody's um, in, 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 in danger in terms of um, domestic violence, is the key thing. Because the police will come to a case if like, you, know, you do call them. And refuges are, st are still open as well. So I just want people to know that services are still out there. Yeah. Um, and Lord Woody as well, what, what about for young people? You're flying the flag in your meetings and we appreciate it so much. If, if someone is young and wants to get involved um, and has that heart to be like, yeah, I've got a voice and I want to use it, where would you point them to? Well, to my organisation, Operation Black Vote. We need talented black and brown places in high places. But just on the domestic front, uh, that, there's a great website, government website, Domestic Abuse, How to Get Help. And there's another ethnicity and economic impact on COVID-19. If they Google that, ethnicity and economic impact of COVID-19 have given the information. Information is power. That young people today need to take up that leadership role to own the space, start making demands. Left, right and centre is your time. Yeah, amazing. And the last point from Dr. Sonia, go on. <laughs> I just had a thought. I think, this, I think the current crisis has also exposed that we may not have the best people in power making these decisions. So I think if you're a young person watching this and you think you could do a better job, put yourself forward, um, go and see, search out Operation Black Vote, get into politics, because um, we need some bright minds for the future, I think. Yeah. In power. 
perfect note to end on thank you um that's our wrap guys thank you so much for tuning in um thank you to all of our amazing special guests for this episode in particular this is my life my say quarantine question time my name is Waza. we're back every thursday to do this all over again with some more brilliant minds to think about how covid19 is really affecting our lives and particularly with young people as well um so dominic lord woolley nimco and sonia thank you so so much for jumping on um, we'll catch up with you guys very very soon and until then make sure at eight o'clock you clap for your nhs as well and um, we'll see you guys very soon shout out to everyone on socials take care bye you're listening to my life my says podcast